1: Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Mindfulness in 2019 is everywhere. It helps people in a variety of ways... Mindfulness and meditation are being researched by universities around the world for effects on the brain, and techniques are even being used in psychotherapy sessions. Yet many people who use the techniques are unaware of the ancient roots of the term. Seeing how and what to pay attention to in the world is based on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra, known as the Satipatthana Sutta. Today's subject is the new book, Mindfulness and Intimacy, from Soto Zen teacher Ben Connolly. Ben's book tries to show how everything in the world is connected and how to help people see that their actions in any given moment is connected to everything else in the world. Mindfulness and Intimacy covers topics such as the self, the body, the mind, the heart, dying, nature family, friends, romance, and art. Ben's book is also incredibly accessible for even the most beginning of readers on the topic of meditation, the four foundations of mindfulness, and Zen. Ben Connolly is a Minneapolis-based Soto Zen teacher in the category Lineage. He offers a wide variety of secular mindfulness trainings, including for police departments, corporate settings, correctional facilities, and addiction recovery groups. He teaches at the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, and is the author of Inside the Grass Hut, Inside Vashubandhu's Yogachara, and most recently, Mindfulness and Intimacy, out now from Wisdom Publications. We talked about a little bit of all of the above in this conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So without further delay, please enjoy my chat with Ben Connolly. Ben Connolly, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas.
0: Thanks for having me, Greg.
1: Can you just start off by introducing yourself a bit for the audience so we know who you are?
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm a a guy who lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, where spring is arriving. And I'm a Soto Zen Buddhist priest uh, in the Katagiri lineage. Uh, I received Dharma transmission from Tim Burkett at the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, where I still teach and i also um i do a lot of secular mindfulness training so uh, various places like i do a lot of work with correct uh, not corrections um i used to do some correction stuff now i do a lot of stuff with people in recovery from addiction and uh also um police training and then various other wellness and and corporate type things
1: Wonderful. So, I kind of am interested in your backstory, um, especially when it comes to practicing like Zen or Buddhism in the United States. What was your religious upbringing like? Was it in Zen?
0: Uh, no, I I was uh, raised by a couple of uh, secular humanists, so I was raised without uh, religious tradition, but with a strong sense of values. Um, my my mother was uh, like an activist to some extent and uh, yeah so kind of a progressive secular upbringing
1: and I awesome.
0: uh, came in late
1: okay how did you uh, how did you specifically find Zen like when did you first come across the practice did it grab your attention right away what did you like about it
0: well weirdly um, I started practicing Zen when I was about 32 or something which was a, a little over 15 years ago but Uh, strangely i distinctly remember the first well i remember hearing about zen a couple times when i was a little kid and it's just odd uh that these memories stand out so strongly for me so there may have been some kind of inkling there uh yeah i remember some guy making a joke about you know you know what the sound of one hand clapping is and i was like talking about and then he explained the famous koan of what's the sound of one hand and then he proceeded to clap loudly with one hand which he thought was hilarious and i was like now i know what zen is um, <laughs> then there was also a professor uh, a religion professor at the college where my parents taught grinnell college in iowa and he is a he's a jewish man a holocaust survivor and he was practicing zen and he would go to japan and train and it was really hardcore classic zen where it was very strict and they used the the kyosaku stick to tap you on the shoulders to wake you up and and everyone thought, wow, this guy's really kind of going off the deep end. <laughs> but he's a really wonderful man. So I remember that. But personally, um, I encountered it. Basically, I uh, I was suffering tremendously. I, I have a, a long history of chemical dependency. I've been sober for 20-some years and mental illness. And so uh, I was just sort of desperately looking around for ways to be well. And uh, I used a lot of different things. Like I've done a lot of uh, 12-step recovery stuff and psychotherapy. But doing all those was still not enough. I was still just uh, struggling. And so uh, I started meditating. And from meditation, I got interested in Zen. I also – Was thought maybe a religious tradition could be supportive for me. And so I was reading religious literature from all over the world. And the literature of Zen really just clicked for me. And that opened the door. Then I started meeting actual people. And that's when it really took off.
1: That is really interesting. I appreciate your candidness there as well, because you don't have to share things like that about your life if you don't want to. So I appreciate you opening up on that. And, you know, your response kind of reminded me of my friend Chris Grasso, who. Um, wrote a book last year called dead set on living where he is very open and transparent about his own chemical dependencies as well. So that is really interesting. So thank you so much for sharing that Ben. Yeah. Um, And I know that you mentioned earlier the category Soto lineage. What is that for listeners? I don't think I've ever had a description of category Soto on the show before. So I'm just kind of curious if you can lay out what that is.
0: Yeah, well, Soto Zen is one of the two largest sects of Zen coming out of Japan, um, and uh, I would say Soto Zen is distinguished by an emphasis on um, doing realization or doing enlightenment now, so as opposed to some schools of Buddhism that are more um, emphasize practicing in order to attain states of enlightenment. So... Uh, yeah, that's that's that would be a distinction. So we really emphasize wholehearted doing of each thing, cooking, uh, picking up this cup of water I'm picking up right now, and so forth. Uh, so the Soto, the the category lineage in the U.S. We often refer to our lineages just in terms of the Japanese teacher who transmitted authority to people here in the U.S. Like in the last fifty years, mm-hmm. so. Um, so Katagiri, he originally came to the United States to be an assistant to Shunyu Suzuki, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. is definitely one of the most prominent Japanese teachers in American history. And then Katagiri, some people in Minnesota convinced him to move here. They said, there are enough people who want to do this. You could come and start something. And he moved to Minnesota. And at the time, there was – my understanding is the uh, Minnesota Zen Center that he founded was the first um, Zen practice center in the U.S., outside of the coasts, although it's possible that would be contested. Anyway, so I moved here and and passed the teaching on to people, and that's the lineage I'm in.
1: Wonderful. Um, Okay, so let's dive into a little bit about your brand new book. I know you have a few books out, but you're the author of a brand new book from Wisdom Publications titled Mindfulness and Intimacy. So first of all, congratulations on its release. That's really cool. Thanks. And so as the author, what do you see as being the overarching goal of the book? What are you shooting for as the writer?
0: Uh, Well, I want to allow the reader to develop um, ways to see how and what to pay attention to to promote wellness for themselves and everyone. So mindfulness is basically about... um, how you pay attention and it's based in the idea that you can train your mind to be more focused on the things in any given moment that would be helpful and to be focusing on them in a way that would be more helpful so that's the kind of the mindfulness side and then the intimacy side is I'm using the term in a in a way that's totally conventional in Zen discourse and might be surprising to most people so intimacy here refers to the fact that everything is always already completely intimate So because everything arises dependent on everything else, which if you give us some thought, you'll start to see that that's pretty clearly most people would be like, yep, that seems to be the way it is. That means everything is already totally closely uh, knitted. Or as Dr. King says in the letter from Birmingham jail, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. So intimacy the intimacy side is about helping people see that whatever they're doing in any given moment is always connected to everything else so that helps us to begin to focus on doing things including paying attention in a way that helps everything so that we don't have to kind of feel like oh i'm taking care of myself now or i'm taking care of someone else we can just realize we can always be taking care of everything
1: what did you notice um, was lacking in society that um, made you start thinking about intimacy? Um, like, did you notice something was lacking in our lifestyles to where that topic became really important and helped you make this book take shape?
0: Yeah, that, that, is, a, that is an insightful question. So, <laughs> uh, yes, in many ways. I mean, one, I think that uh, you know, alienation, that is to say a, a sense of separation and non-connectedness is a uh, natural, it's a, it's been prevalent in all human life from my observation, just reading literature, uh all along. And it's a central theme of Buddhism, but it's actually heightened in American society. This is actually one of the ways, um, our, we have a hyper individualized society. So, so people's sense of intimacy is, is diminished, but actually I would say, this book also is in particular a response to the way mindfulness is being appropriated into American and, and Western culture. So mindfulness is a it's a particular practice that's that's part of Buddhist teachings um, that doesn't have anything religious about it in particular, except for that it's embedded in that body of literature and tradition. But uh The thing is, there's a very reasonable treat coming around, as you know, as you probably know, we have mindfulness being taught in schools, at corporations. Uh, As I said, I do it with police, at all kinds of places. And then you see, if you read the newspaper, if you read any wellness article, it seems like half of them mention that um, you should do mindfulness. They'll either name it specifically, or they'll actually say the things that mindfulness is without mentioning that's what they're saying. Anyway, the critique uh, that would be easy to make of the way mindfulness is being appropriated is in the US, we could very easily make this a thing where we use mindfulness to help people to be more accepting of how things are. And actually, how things are is not something that I want people to accept.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: Because we we exist intimately – already in systems that are oppressive so when dr king talks about the inescapable network of mutuality he's not like saying yay it's all flowers his point is in that essay the letter from birmingham jail that because that's true he has to go out and work for people's liberation so mindfulness if it's understood uh in my opinion the best way calls your attention to the fact that you're intimately involved with things, and that will help us to work our way out of these systems that we're all part of, which white supremacy, patriarchy, um, transphobia, homophobia, and I could go on for, for a long time. And the massive degradation of our planet and our environment, all these things, we're intimate with that. So mindfulness shouldn't be helping us to just be more chill. It should be helping us to be more engaged and liberative.
1: Wonderful. Okay, and the first words in your book, which I've really enjoyed for the last couple weeks, really jump out at me in response to exactly what you just said. So the first words in the book are, here we are together through words. And so here you and I are together through voice, through the internet. What are you inviting the reader to consider with this intimate beginning of being together? Well,
0: uh, I think one of the things I want to say is, like, you're going to read this book about mindfulness and intimacy. You might be like, oh, the, the author of this book knows something about intimacy, and he will explain to me how to do it. And my point is, we're already intimate. We're already connected. You're reading this. I'm sitting here writing this. I'm having this experience thinking about you, and you're reading it. That connection is already there. It's not something that um, you have to – look for far away it's here
1: yeah you know and reading it um being there with you that that lured me in as a reader you know and I immediately felt a sort of like a kinship with you as the writer because I felt like you cared about me as the reader even before you ever even knew that I was a person in the world so that was Mm -hmm. pretty cool
0: it's oh, lovely to hear that that's the way you felt it and it's a fascinating thing we i think that's exactly what i'm h- hoping people to realize is you can't know. none of us can know the five billion other people on the planet and yet we can still love them yeah and we can out of that love
1: yeah okay so um there's something in the book that comes up a lot and it's a recurring motif and that is the Buddhist Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra, otherwise known in Pali as the Satipatthana Sutta, and these are body, feelings, mind, and phenomena, or Dhamma. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences, study, and thoughtfulness about this sutta, and why you chose to weave it throughout the book? Because I don't get the impression a lot of people are reading the Pali Canon. Um <laughs> So, you know, like, there's a lot of, like, uh, the the whole, like, critique is, like, the McMindfulness movement, which I've been reading about a lot in the new book, American Dharma, by Anne Gleig, where, you know, she writes about that. But you have this sacred, ancient text, Satipatthana Sutta, woven throughout the book. So tell me why.
0: Uh, Yeah, I just want to say a shout-out to Anne Gleig, who's, uh, she was the, the keynote at a recent uh, Soto Zen Buddhist Association Conference of Teachers, and she is Wonderful, I, I'm waiting to get that book yet, but I'm confident it will be great. It's, anyway, it is
1: good, I'm reading it right now, it's spectacular. Yeah, yeah, so uh, your question, why why
0: did I want to weave that text through? Well, to me, um, part of the um, way that as as Westerners we're appropriating um, Buddhist thought and Buddhism into our culture uh, how do I put this? Not about the part of it. We should be really careful and uh, respectful in how we do that. So one of the one of the um, tendencies of American culture, and you could say a white white culture, is to think that like basically we can subsume anything in the world and just take it in, and then we'll do it better. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of look at like uh, blues music. There are people making amazing blues music, and then it's like, white people, we can take it, now we own it, we don't give people credit that they wrote it, and and we'll do it better. So we should be the famous ones, and we should get all the money. So that's just one example, but you could go down the line and do this all day. So the thing is, this can very easily happen and with mindfulness or other elements of Buddhist teaching. So one, I want to respect the human beings who are doing the practice in Asia, the human beings who transmitted it through my lineage and other people's lineages and also the textual tradition, because that's part of how that came. So basically if we're going to say in the U S that we're doing mindfulness, I just like think it's really important to do it by looking at what mindfulness has been for 2,500 years, instead of being like, we've got some ideas about it and now it's ours. So I want to keep referring back to that root, not because it's perfect, but as a way of doing the process respectfully and also because there's profound wisdom there.
1: Yeah, and you know, the cultural appropriation thing is super important to discuss in all aspects of academia and in our public life because it's, just like you said, super respectful and important to do so, Um, especially to give homage to the people that come before us where all these ideas are derived from. So your book is also... Incredibly modern, because as I was reading it, I was thinking about how the world has a tendency to throw little irritations at us. And you write in the book, there's a quote that jumps out at me, and you write, quote, "...understanding how to focus our awareness, how to practice mindfulness, can help us shed unpleasant emotional states and habits of thought, and can help us take care of things." So to me, this makes a lot of sense in like daily irritants, like being in frustrating traffic or being late or forgetting to do something important or even just like dealing with like 100 emails a day and other stuff. Um, What practices do you see as being most helpful to you when handling these types of things we all face every day? Like how do you go about using these practices for modern irritations?
0: Mm. Oh, fun. Well, first, I'm just going to, I'm going to, Say something like overarching. So kind of the basic idea of how I understand mindfulness and intimacy, or I could say mindfulness and interdependence, is based in uh, really my favorite Buddhist thinker, a a fellow named Vasubandhu, from about 1,500 years ago. And he basically said mindfulness is really effective at helping you uh, shed patterns of emotional reactivity. Mindfulness is good for helping you shed patterns of emotional reactivity – and awareness of intimacy or independence is helpful to shed your sense of alienation. And those two things, alienation and emotional reactivity, feed each other. But if you kind of separate them out, they can be useful to see through those two lenses. So mindfulness is really good for this thing you're talking about here. And uh, one, it really helps to have a formal uh Meditation, mindfulness practice, or an environment where you say, "Now my focus is on how I'm developing awareness." So the thing is, usually, like if you get formal training, you're going to start with the body. That's that's the first foundation of mindfulness, and it's very effective. And then I just because the four foundations of mindfulness is actually quite complex, uh, I break it down similarly to how Vasubandhu does. He basically says. You want to start by being aware of your body and your senses. So, and that has a very Zen flavor. You Just like I'm looking out the window, really looking at the shape of the tree as it is right now and the way the light's falling on it and letting my attention rest in the moment. That actually already will diminish emotional reactivity because there's a pause in the all the thinking I have that, that drives my reactivity in a loop. So just like you say, if you're in a meeting, and you're starting to get really irritated with everybody, you can just stop and like you bring your attention into the body and it's like if nothing else, there's a break in your thinking about how everyone else is stupid and wrong. So that's helpful but then the next step that really does usually take some cultivation is then being really mindful of the emotional state you're experiencing. And this is why uh, I say mindfulness has a what and a how. Mm-hmm. So, the what is the thing you're choosing to pay attention to, and the how is with non judgmental, compassionate awareness. So, we begin to be able to be aware in any moment of what the emotional state is and, and, uh, and it's the experience of it. So, not just naming it, although naming it is okay, but actually knowing what it is and holding it in awareness with non-judgment and compassion and nothing in my experience will be more powerful at diminishing your patterns of emotional reactivity than that
1: very act. It's like giving yourself a superpower almost where you can like, you know, channel and harness your own anger and frustration, right?
0: Yeah. You're using it for liberation because the thing is that whatever thing came up is what's here. So there's never an opportunity to do something liberative or healing outside of what's here. This is the time, and it's like, well, that's the thing that's the, got the most heat that's the one that's going to motivate me to do something unhelpful or confusing and even if that even if it's not motivating me badly, it's just unpleasant. So I can do something liberative right here.
1: <clears throat> So one of the biggest things that people can do, I feel like, over my years of talking about these topics, is like a deep Zazen practice. Um, So one of my favorite things about Buddhism-associated practice, like Zazen, is that somebody can do them intensely, but also not necessarily call themselves a Buddhist, you know, like... I don't call myself a Buddhist, but I've done Zazen a lot. Um, but, I've, you know, I've not really had a deep connection to other things like liturgy, um, like bowing. In fact, you even say early in the book that non-religious people can just as easily do the practices in your book as a dedicated Buddhist. And I know that this is sort of a conflict, like with the whole like mindfulness thing and the debates that took place around that. Have you worked closely with people who do the practices outlined in the book but don't identify as Buddhist?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Yes, uh, yeah, I mean, they're they're just things you can do. I mean, it's a peculiar thing. So I was at a, I'm in a, on this thing called the Minnesota Multi-Faith Network. So we're a statewide group of uh, faith leaders in Minnesota and organizations. And we were having our annual meeting and uh, people were just talking, we were like at the kind of conversation part of the tables and someone was like, you know what I want to do is these Buddhists have been so good at making their thing, like bringing the psychology out of it and then having it be like a secular thing. And I want to figure out how to do that with Christianity, which I thought was was interesting. Um, and I I commend their project and I hope it's fruitful, but I have to say like, Buddhism is a lot of things, but a huge part of it is principally and fundamentally psychological. So it's just unlike other religious traditions like that. Um, there's there's many ways you can use. Uh, religious traditions in a non-religious context but buddhism from what i've seen is distinct in the degree to which it is psychological or actually more technical phenomenological but your question was do i know people are doing this absolutely lots like i'm going to be co-leading a a thing at a synagogue in los angeles in in a month with one of the cantors there who's a dear friend of mine and I, I do this in secular contexts. I have a, a regular secular mindfulness sitting group in Minneapolis. So yeah.
1: Do um do any of the people that you work with? Did they ever describe to you how they see Buddhist practice fitting within a life that they don't identify as Buddhist?
0: Oh, I, I'm I'm not sure I followed that question. Could you rephrase?
1: Can you Can you tell me about how uh, the people who they don't identify as Buddhist? but yes. they but they do buddhist practices how do they reconcile that gap
0: oh uh i think i, I actually don't know i don't hear them talking about needing to reconcile almost at all they're gotcha. just like i just they're like i like sitting because it helps me be happier and more calm and you know they might say i'm spiritual but not religious you know yeah <laughs> but mostly i just don't hear I hang out with people doing this stuff all the time. I have many uh, secular mindfulness clients that I go and teach this stuff and I, I just it's a funny question
1: because it it just doesn't even come up. Speaking of calm, you just said the word calm and that jumped out at me. We live in a frantic society. You probably okay. agree. <laughs> And um, you wrote, when you stop to pay attention to how your body and mind are, you will find a little closeness with yourself. And to me, that was like an invitation to see how the franticness of the world is impacting me. And then later in the book, you write, It's still pretty wondrous just feeling my back sinking into this chair right now as my eyes subtly move to follow these words I type. And I loved that. It was great. And so you're open to contemplating how wild and crazy it is that we even exist in the world and how magical all of this life and experience can be. So my question is... Why is this important addressing this franticness and how does one stop to pay attention to one's body and mind?
0: Um well, you know, there may be people listening to this who are, they're not frantic at all. I mean, we're we're pretty various, but we do have a culture that is kind of it, um encouraging us feeling this way and living this way. And um one of the main reasons it's problematic is just that it makes us alienated from ourselves. So, and other people, because we're, we're wrapped up in this churning thing about getting things done. We're missing a lot. Uh, and so that's why, like in the first quote, it's by being aware of the body and the mind it that we start cultivating infancy intimacy by being willing to care about and pay attention to ourselves. Um, so, uh, being frantic, the, like the word has this, um, uh, semantic range, this valence that's like, it's not good. It's got a negative connotation, but moving fast or being busy isn't bad inherently So, in the, to, to use a Buddhist text, uh, the loving kindness sutra, it says someone who's wise and skillful at being kind should be unburdened with duties unburdened with duties and so on the one hand sometimes i need to like put down my duties so i can focus on the body i need to actually make a space where, because otherwise the frantic habit will make it so i can't find intimacy with my body and mind so i need to. Be like, now's the time where i sit on the cushion or i go on a retreat but ultimately you can be doing anything and realizing intimacy but because it takes practice for most of us to kind of break the habit of the frantic mind and behavior, we need to make that space.
1: And, uh, I think that from what I gather in the book, I think one of your strategies for making space for yourself is music, right? Uh,
0: yeah, well, to me, uh, that's true. I'm, a, I'm a, like a semi retired musician, like by profession. I teach some students now and very rarely perform, but, um, Music, any arts, basically in the chapter on the arts, I just want to point out that uh, in in ways that are almost too many to list, making art or being around art or immersing ourselves in art, it evokes a lot of the qualities that the book is about because people tend to be more, they're focused, um, they're focused in a way that is... is uh, feels good, and and there's the sense of connection. Those all often come through art making. And I would say that's one of the fundamental functions. That's probably why art is such a big part of human culture.
1: Yeah, you know, and in the book, in the chapter on art, another quote jumps out at me. It's when you're talking about attention and the gift of attention and how you say, if we see beauty, if we give our attention to beauty, it will enter us and be a part of us, and we will be a little more likely to create beauty. And That spoke to me. So I'm 35, and I make a podcast, and I love doing these conversations. I love playing music. I go to, like, concerts constantly in Buffalo, and I love going to art museums and writing a little bit of fiction, and I was also a 10th grade English teacher, and I was trying so hard to encourage all my students over the years that exactly what you say, if we give our attention to beauty, it will enter us, and it will be a part of us, and we will make beauty and so tell me um a little bit more about that like how do you you know go about creating and what inspires you to create Mm -hmm. i keep kind of dodging around your questions but i'm
0: going to circle back i just want to say by making beauty i don't mean like just making a pretty painting i mean like to me uh the i'll use the term zen but also like zen is a, a the art of performing liberation and liberation is beautiful. Um, So anyway, uh, no, I did lose your question. So how how do you, how do you go about making beauty? The thing is for most people, it, it, you want to kind of trust a sense of calling or interest. So like what type of making actually compels you, but when the impulse comes up, honor it. Right. So personally, I'll just say, like, I, I hated writing prose. I like I, I would laugh about people who wrote books. I was like, that sounds like so much work. <laughs> now, as a songwriter, which is like I would say writing songs is like standing in a thunder- thunderstorm with an umbrella. You know, you kind of make yourself receptive. But finally, this there's so little of it. It just comes down. Whereas, you know, with writing prose, you just got to sit and write and write. But one day, about 10 years ago, just on a whim, I was like, boy, it'd be kind of fun to write, write some prose. I just sat on my porch, so I honored the impulse. And now I've written three books. And it absolutely came out of that first moment of having a slight impulse to just write. I was like, instead of being like, ah, I don't want to do that, or I can't do that which that's the biggest thing is this idea that you have to be good at something to do it. So my example that I became an author is not good because it makes it sound like that's the end goal, which it isn't. Um, But honoring your impulses to just make something uh, or even, you know, my wife now is into photography and it's, she We're just walking and she sees the beauty in something and then she wants to engage with it in a way that makes an image that's beautiful
1: you know and something you said just jumped out at me too so your aversion to writing years ago that was not a permanent state that you found yourself (laughs) in forever there aren't any of those you know and so like that to me jumps out and, and your chapter on not knowing really jumps out at me there because you know, you would say something when you were like 35, you would never say at 45, and you would say something at 45 that you would cringe at when you're 70. And so, yeah. you know, our, our states of mind are so fleeting. And so, you know, the more I read, the more people like you that I speak to, the more places I travel to, the less I feel like I know for sure. And so, like, societies that we hold have traditions that we hold dear, but Recently I heard someone say, tradition is the tyranny of the dead. And that like mm. that like blew my mind. <laughs> you know? So even when I hear myself speaking and ideas are coming out, I can't help but think, did I think that by myself? Or did I hear someone else say that and I'm just re-saying it now? What do I know that is original to me? And if I really investigate that question... I have to say that there's really not that much that I know that is definitely original to me because we're all products of our surroundings so much and we're all products of what we ingest on a day-to-day basis. Can you tell me, so I know that was a giant tangent, but can you tell me a little bit about the role of not knowing in your own life and practice and how it helps you and how it motivates you to keep growing? Yeah, yeah, giant
0: tangent. I like that. Sorry, man, Um, that was great. I, I was on a roll there. I love it. So, uh, not knowing, I mean, one of the, I mean, I, not knowing is such a central theme to, uh, to Buddhism. And, you know, there's a famous koan where, uh, Dizong asked Fayan, where are you going? Fayan said, around on pilgrimage. Dizong said, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? Fayan said, I don't know. And Dizong said, not knowing is most intimate. So I just thought, you know, being is how intimacy is the theme of the thing, and I didn't put that in the book. It would be fun to say it here. So not knowing, basically, um, mm-hmm. our knowing the, in the conventional way, which is having ideas about things or having them framed in particular ways, uh, is wonderful. It's very helpful. But it's also very limiting because it always puts what we're experiencing into that frame, which, as you say, comes from all these conditions, um, which have a tyrannical quality, to to quote your puckish brand. (laughs) Um, So the thing is, if we can touch experience or if experience can arise um, without this overlay of knowing or with a less gross overlay and a more subtle overlay – um, then, then the, our intimacy with the thing reveals itself because basically our thinking is making separation. That's what it does. It separates things out so that they can be manipulated. So, uh, not knowing is really one of the most powerful doorways to intimacy you can have. Now, the thing is it lives in intimacy with knowing. So, a good way to think about this is if you think about someone you love, say your spouse comes to you and I'm just going to make up this example as I go. So the spouse comes and they're upset about something. Now, conventionally, one thing you might do is just be like, uh, Oh, I know what they're going to say. And, and I want to get out of it because I don't want to deal with it or they're going to, say I'm doing something wrong. And so you have a, you have a lot of knowing about what, where they're coming from, and you have a lot of knowing about your defenses. Well, you don't know about them, you just know they just operate in their own framework. And then you have the same argument you've had with your spouse 47,000 times. This <laughs> happens to people all the time. It happens with your kids, it happens at work, it happens with yourself. So the thing is, all that knowing does have utility But you want to be able to know it and then put it down. So I want to be like, ah, I I know that my spouse is unhappy. And I know that these things have made them unhappy before. And I know, using my normal mode of knowing, that I have all these reactivities. And then I can put all that down and just totally hear the person talk to me and be radically present without having to – Back to the the what and the how of mindfulness. What? You're paying attention to, to this person who's sharing something difficult with you or maybe saying they're upset with you. And the how is non judgmental, non controlling, uh, non, yeah, non judgmental, non controlling, and compassionate. And if you can hold those two things of your knowing and your not knowing together, you're going to get the best outcome.
1: You know, and you can almost back that out to that non-judgmental, that not controlling, and you can really even apply that to larger communities, right? hmm So, you know, I kept thinking as I was reading your community section about fragmentation of community while you were talking um, about connecting communities and everything you just said about non-judgmentalness. Were you thinking at all about fragmentation while you were writing the book?
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's the intimacy lives intimately with our fragmentation.
1: <laughs> yeah, because
0: they're always so intimacy is about non dualism. So it both is separate from and not separate. From. But that's fancy language. So let me get more to the point. So one of the things about intimacy within human consciousness, the way we understand it is we want it. So we try and find ways to make it. And the way we make it usually includes an exclusion so we say, I'm part of this group. I feel intimate with them. That is where I am intimate. And that means other people are separate. So the natural psychological impulse for intimacy usually creates both a feeling of intimacy and an idea of separation. So this the practices in this book are designed to help us actually make it so we can have an intimacy where nothing is left out. Now... So, you know, that's just like if I'm like I'm progressive and so I think that conservative people are terrible. Right. And my progressive people are the people I feel close to. That's problematic. Now, at the same time, it's very reasonable. And people are uh, suffer enormously at the hands of each other. And so um, we need to respect the need, the psychological need for us to find intimacy and feel separation so there have been people who have traumatized me uh there i actually don't need to anymore personally but there was time where i really need to actively separate from them because i needed that psychological protection so we need to honor that there are people it's like you can't just say oh you should just love everybody i don't think that is respectful so i also want to say another thing about control so a lot of people will say wait a minute if you're saying i shouldn't be controlling anything and there's like violence being done that is just bad and i can understand why you would think that but here's here's the thing controlling is about believing there's a separate object outside of you that could be manipulated that's the basic way our consciousness is conditioned to function it thinks there's objects that are separate from us that be, can be controlled to keep us safe and that has some effectiveness but it's very limited so what I'm advocating for this book is cultivating a way of being where you can always just be focused on doing the liberative thing. And the thing is, the things that we think are in our control generally aren't. But we can keep coming back to this, I can do something liberative based on my understanding and connection to everyone.
1: So even if there is a gap, we can still return and uh, repair fragmentation.
0: Oh, Definitely. Yeah, the, I, I've seen all kinds of personal and communal relationships get fragmented and find repair. And the repair doesn't ever come by people trying to control each other. It comes from people actually realizing connection.
1: Some of your big acknowledgments that you cite in the back of the book as some of your major influences seem to be figures in history that have done exactly what you just described, like Thich Nhat Hanh, bell hooks, Gandhi, Ida Wells, Dr. King. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspires you in um, in some of these writings?
0: Uh, well, they are various, but um, they're people. They tend to be people who none of them was perfect, and and we could spend you know it's very reasonable to spend time talking about their faults and the things they did that were harmful. But here, I'll emphasize. All of them, the ones you listed and many other people who I found most inspiring are people who were, who didn't shy away from, they completely recognized the system of harm that they were part of, and then just kept stepping forward again and again for something that was liberative for both themselves and everyone else. And I usually wouldn't even make that distinction because their liberation is, um, What's Audre Lord says,, uh, without community, there is no liberation. So like it has to be communal, but but it's your own. So these are people who didn't shy away from the truth of suffering, but uh, but walked into it in a way that was freeing.
1: I love that. Okay. Well, um Ben Connolly. This has been a delightful hour that we've spent together today talking about your new book, Mindfulness and Intimacy. I am super grateful to you for coming on Classical Ideas. Can you tell listeners where they can find you or find more of their more of your work if they want to dig a little deeper?
0: Dig a little deeper in the storehouse of your love. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, I don't have like a website or anything. I don't know. Maybe I should. But I, if you want to find my books, I have three books, and they're, they're easily available anywhere online. So if you just search my name, uh, you'll find it. Although there is a Christian pastor with my name who also publishes books. So if there are books about uh, being a missionary, those aren't mine. Um, but God bless the other Ben Connolly author. So anyway, that's just easy to find with a simple Google search. Uh, I am going to be traveling extensively around the country to teach about mindfulness and intimacy. The easiest place to find out about where I'm doing that would be to go to the uh, Minnesota Zen Meditation Center website. We have a page, and I have about 40 dates, and I'll be yeah going all over the place, and I'd I'd love to meet people. That's why I do this. I like to connect with people and uh, learn about their path of liberation and share mine.
1: Nice. I know earlier you mentioned that you uh, look up to the teachings of Vashubandhu. You have a a book specifically about Vashubandhu, don't you?
0: Yes, uh, Inside Vashubandhu's Yogachara. Uh, I thought after I I wandered around the country talking about that book and everyone would just look at me when I said the title with, with blank eyes. Because it is a little daunting, Vasubandhu Yogachara. So then I wrote a, this other book called Mindfulness and Intimacy. I thought that would be a little easier to uh, get your hands on. But uh, inside Vasubandhu's Yogacara, I just love this teacher's vision. Um, and I, I could totally see basically trying to – in a way, Mindfulness and Intimacy is about transmitting his vision of practice and liberation into a, a – a, A way of understanding that's more easily accessible to people who are um, not wanting to read ancient buddhist texts but it he's a beautiful teacher and i'm happy to have been able to write the book
1: fantastic well ben connolly thank you so much sir i look forward to speaking to you again sometime on classical ideas it's been a real pleasure
0: yeah this has been a, a wonderful conversation greg i really appreciate the opportunity to meet
1: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at outlook.com.